Uh, turning your Bibles to Romans 7, verses 7 through 12. That'll be the primary text, though we'll, we'll be flipping around a bit uh, in the course of the message. Uh, I think this has been a good summer for us as a congregation. I think it's been a good year in the sense of the last 12 months. We've been able to uh, secure uh, 60 parking places downtown. We were able to purchase 18 Hall Street and secure control of the lane. Um, we've been averaging well over 300 in uh, Sunday nights uh, here at Point Pleasant, which is more than we've ever averaged before. I thought it'd be a good occasion to pause and reflect on our ministry and try to consolidate uh, the kind of themes that we've been hearing from the, the messages on, on Jonah on Sunday morning, Ten Commandments Sunday night, and Tim's messages on uh, Galatians also Sunday night. And I want the focus to be our responsibility to preach the law and the gospel. I don't think it's ever been more important for us to be clear on this because we are living in a lawless age. I worry sometimes that uh, those who were born um, since 1990 may not recognize the extent to which this is the case. Whereas those of us who were born uh, before that, in the, you know, the 40s and 50s, and maybe even the 60s, are aware of the, the cultural decline, the, the moral decline, the, the, the decline in standards. Uh, those who were brought up in the Depression era will often comment, that is, grew up in the 1930s, that uh, they didn't know that they were poor. In other words, they didn't know any better. They had no other frame of reference. Uh, uh, Mike Spittler tells me that they had a two-seat outhouse, and, and they thought they were relative, relatively well off uh, compared to their neighbors. They didn't have any running water. They didn't have you know, indoor toilets, but they had a double-seater outside. Uh, and so they, they didn't know they were poor. Uh, that, that, that's, all they, that's all that they knew. And that's, so that's what I think about those who are relatively young. I think that they don't realize uh, the decline. They don't, they don't realize that we, we have been in a downward spiral for about um, 60 years of collapsing standards. Uh, so I, I want to try to hit on that theme. Um, um, I'm, 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 I'm concerned not to be overly repetitious with things that have been said, but I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to do is consolidate what has been said and try to tie that all uh, together. So let's begin with talking about the, what, the extent to which we are living in a lawless age. We are in an age of vanishing norms and standards. And here are some of the symptoms. Uh, one, aesthetic. I think that most of us are accustomed to thinking about you know, the beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And, and, and so that it's, it's pure subjectivity. It's just a matter of taste. And I want to, I want to uh, dissent from that, that view. Um, I think that all truth, righteousness, and beauty find their ultimate expression and reference point or source in God himself. And so it can't be cu purely subjective. Uh, righteousness, properly understood, is a beautiful thing. Truth, understood, is, is beautiful to conceive. And, and so likewise, um, beauty is ultimately to be found in God and, and does have objective criteria, even though it is largely subjective and, and difficult to identify. And so what I'm saying is that when we look at the world around here, just go out into a public space somewhere. Go to the airport. Um, go, go to an amusement park. And it's absolutely astonishing, the complete collapse of of a, of a sense of what is beautiful. Uh, there's even a preference, it seems, for the ugly, uh, for the unbeautiful. Uh, there, there's, a, there's no longer, there seems to be an understanding of proportion and balance 
and, and neatness and, and uh, these sorts of, uh, sorts of things. And, and I would trace that ultimately as a symptom back to the fact that when you lose a grip on truth and lose a grip on righteousness, you will then over time lose your grip on beauty. Um, if, whether we're talking about, um, whether we're talking about um, architecture, art, music, fashion, I think, I think that we're in a, a period of aesthetic chaos, uh, aesthetic um, anarchy. Uh, I have on my shelves H.R. Uh, Ruckmacher, Modern Art and the Death of a Culture. That's the way he sees it. Artistic chaos in terms of standards. I have another book on my shelf, uh, Robert Pattison, book largely out about uh, m modern music, The Triumph of Vulgarity. Yeah, these are academic works. Um, an, an, another, James H. Kunstler, Geography of Nowhere. He talks about uh, uh, pre-World War II buildings in America and how beautifully they were built. And, and go to any European city, absolutely gorgeous architecture. And you look at uh, American cities today, they're just ugly. You know, sprawling parking lagoons uh, at, 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 the, at the end of which are, are just square and rectangled buildings that have no beauty whatsoever. Collapsing standards of beauty, whether we're talking about architecture, art, or, 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 or fashion, or music. Symptomatic of the fact that we have no standards any longer. So aesthetics, language. I went to the doctor the other day and I was asked for my preferred pronouns. I'm a boy, okay? That, that should not be a question. But they wanted to know if I wanted to be known as he, she, or they. They, a plural. Standards for language have collapsed to the, to, the, to, the, to the abuse of the butchering of the English language. No standards remain anymore. We, we like to watch uh, the sports documentaries. They're almost unwatchable now. The profanity, every other sentence, every other word virtually is profane, of the worst sort of profanity. Uh, they, become, they become almost unwatchable. They're so offensive. And then the rest of the programming, likewise, the, 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 the blasphemy. I mentioned that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, collapsing standards in the use of language. Film. Uh, film that would have been regarded pornography a couple of decades ago is now commonly watched by everyone, including Christians. Would never have been watched or commonly watched. We're, we're like the, the proverbial frogs in the, in the boiling pot of water. We're, we're just getting carried along by, by the culture, and we're not even aware of what's going on. We're not any, even aware of the way that the standards have, have completely collapsed. And so the Christians now are watching programming commonly and even gratuitously uh, featuring nude scenes and sex scenes. And these are seen as essential, and that's why I say they're gratuitous, because they, they're just injected, because it's as though you must have one of those scenes. And so Christians are being exposed to, 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 to films that previously would have been X-rated and never been watched by us. And then what, uh, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be a man or a woman? One of our 11-year-olds on the soccer field was asked the other day, uh, or rather she was accused the other day because she didn't quite play the, you know, the mean girl games, uh, whether or not she might be a, a boy trapped in the body of a girl, an 11-year-old. That's how this has infected the culture. This is what's going on uh, out there. There's a, just a, a chaos, anarchy, complete uh, collapse of standards. All of this is a rejection of 2,000 years of Christian standards. It's a rejection of the Christian religion. It's a, it's a rejection of the law of God. Nothing is fixed. Nothing is certain. 
G.K. Chesterton, at the turn of the 20th century, writing in 1905, said prophetically, looking ahead to the outworking of what he saw in seminal form even then, fires will be kindled to testify that two plus two make four. Swords will be drawn to prove that leaves are green in the summer because everything's going to be relative and subjective. And there'll be no way of knowing anything that's actually, that's actually true or right or beautiful. And the result of this is all going to be untold human suffering. Children without parents, couples without children, husbands without wives, singles without families, families without communities, people who don't have an identity, who don't know who they are, who are lost and troubled and anxious. So the question then is, what are we to do? My answer is, number one, we're to preach the law. Number two, we're to preach the gospel. Let's unfold that. We're to preach the law. Why are we studying the Ten Commandments on Sunday nights? Romans 3.20. We repeat it often when we introduce the Ten Commandments on Sunday nights. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. I don't know what sin is. It's left undefined. How do I know what sin is? How do I know what is right and wrong? How do I uh, know what, the, what the, the, the problem is with humanity? How do I identify the issue that is between us and God, what God approves of and disapproves of, what's according to the will of God and contrary to the will of God, what pleases God and what displeases God? How? From the law of God. And the gospel is incomprehensible apart from the law of God. Matthew 1, Jesus came to save his people from their what? From their sins. Uh, 1 Timothy 1, Christ Jesus came into the world to save what? Sinners. Defined by what? By what criteria? By what standard? Well, 1 John chapter 5. Um, there, the, um, the chapter 3, rather, verse 4, sin is anomia. Namas, law, a, the negative. It is lawlessness. Sin is defined by the law of, of God. Shorter catechism, children. Sin is any want of conformity unto or what? Transgression of the law of God. It defines it for us. I don't know that I need a savior. I, I don't know that I'm lost. I don't know that I'm under condemnation except in so far as I hear the law of God. As of, only so far as I hear that preached. So let's look at, at uh, Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 7. Uh, the Apostle Paul says, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. If you've been scratching your head about what I'm saying so, long, so far, there it is. There's the Apostle saying it. I would not have known sin if it had not been for the law. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now the Apostle Paul is saying this. He's a very moral individual. Very religious individual. He, did, he didn't understand he was sin. Even though he had full exposure to the law of God, it took the Tenth Commandment to sink in that all his external conformity to the law was, as it were, worthless because he, he, had, he, was, he was covetous. He was envious. He had the, the, the green-eyed monster of jealousy in his heart. And it was only when he pondered and meditated upon that 10th commandment that he came to see, I too am lost. I too am a sinner. I too need a savior. That's the condition of the human race. If it's the condition for the apostle Paul, the most moral and religious of individuals, 
How can it not be the case for everybody else, for the rest of us as well? He goes on, but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. And, you know, it's, it's the, the, the sin, I'm, 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 I have no knowledge of it. I'm, I'm unaware of it. It's as though it is dead. It's as though it doesn't even exist. Uh, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The commandment killed me, he says. Killed who I thought I was. Killed my self-righteousness. Uh, killed my self-congratulations. It, it killed my whole self-concept of, of my, myself as one who is very strictly obedient to the, to the law of God. No, it, 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 the commandment, he goes on and said that, that promised life proved to be death to me for sin seizing opportunity and so forth killed me. So the law, verse 12, is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law of God provides absolute standards and norms for morality, for family, for marriage, for all of life, including aesthetics. So when we're talking about the law of God, what are we talking about? Well, let me explain under two different headings. One, natural law. The Apostle Paul preaches the design of nature as a revelation of the law of God. So if you'll flip back from Romans 7 where I trust you've been looking as I've been expounding the text. Romans 1.18, the Apostle Paul there says that God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen being understood through what? What has been made? You can know the truth of God just by looking at the created order so that you have a built-in. And he's addressing people who don't have the Bible, don't have the book, are not uh, a people of the Scriptures. He says, look, you know what's true about God, and you know what's true about right and wrong just by looking at nature, looking at the design of things. So let's go on, beginning at verse 24. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, talking about paganism generally, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies. I wonder what he means by that. Well, he's going to explain it in a moment. Dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. See, there's the theological problem, but the theological is going to lead to a moral problem. These things are all interrelated in God's universe. Truth, righteousness, beauty, the law of God, the truth of God. These are interrelated, interconnected, ultimately inseparable. You fall into idolatry, you're going to fall into immorality fast enough. Exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship the, uh, the, and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Now here it is. For this reason, God gave them over, gave them up to dishonorable passions. Same expression that he used in verse 24. What are those? For the women exchanged what? The natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men with men committing shameless acts with and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. Jude 7, the apostle there refers to unnatural desire. Uh, 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen, very important uh, expression. He says, does not even nature teach you? You're meant to know right and wrong just by looking at things. So, how does it apply, for example, to this passage, physiology? 
Uh, what do you learn from human physiology? Don't you learn that the man and the woman are meant to be united? Isn't that the meaning of uh, their physiology? Isn't that the meaning of their bodies? Isn't that the meaning of their body parts that they're designed to be coupled? Whereas men with men are not designed to be coupled, women with women are not designed to be coupled? You should learn that from physiology. You don't need a Bible to know this. So when we preach these things, it's, it's resonating, it's convicting, because it's observable, because it's there in nature. It's obvious, even if it's suppressed, and he's talking about these things being suppressed. They may be suppressed, but still they know. Um, then what about biology? What's the meaning of the coupling of the man and the woman? Biologically, what's that? what is that? What's the purpose behind that? Oh, the biological meaning is procreation. So the design, the design, the divine design, and even if you're an evolutionist, evolutionary design is such that men and women are meant to be coupled. The physiology fits and the biology fits. And anything else does not fit, is contrary to nature. As, he's, as, he, says, uh, as he says here, you don't need a Bible to understand these things. Further, the apostle Paul says, chapter 2, verse verses 14 and 15, when he says the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. Uh, so, for example, by and large, throughout human history, marriage has been understood as the union of a man and a woman, and all other forms of sexuality have been forbidden in most cultures, in most places, at most times. Now, there's been all kinds of breakdown of that, exceptions for powerful men, for example, though never for women in any civilization until modern times. But yeah, exceptions for, and for polygamy. Polygamy was practiced. But by and large, sacred, marriage was sacred. Wherever you go, in history, in the world, any place, any time, it's as though it was written on people's hearts. Well, that's what the Apostle Paul says it was. You steal somebody's property, it's wrong. You, you violate somebody's marriage, it's wrong. You take a life of another human being, it's wrong. Everybody's understood that. You lie, it's wrong. These things are written on the hearts of everyone. Uh, he continues... Uh, even though they do not have the law, they have this law to themselves. Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their consciences also bear witness and their conflicting thoughts either ex accuse or excuse them and, 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 and so on. When we preach what is true according to nature, according to design, it resonates and it convicts. So we preach the law and that includes what's observable in nature. Natural theology, natural law, what can be understood from what has been made, what is contrary to nature, what is unnatural. And what is unnatural is contrary to the design of the one who created nature. We know the will of God and the mind of God by the acts of God. We know what he wants by what he designs. And then, further in preaching the law, we preach revealed law. Ten commandments, sixth commandment, all of life is sacred. All human life is sacred. Seventh commandment, marriage is the only valid context within which sexual expression can take place. The marriage of one man and one woman. Uh, eighth commandment, the sanctity of other people's property. Their property is not your property. Ninth commandment, the sanctity of the truth. Tenth commandment, internalizes all of the commandments and lays the groundwork for the summary of the law, which is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Our responsibility is to preach the law of God. So question arises. Does that mean church is not a safe place? 
Does that mean that people are going to get offended? Does that mean that they're going to feel judged? Does that mean they're going to think that this is a place that they can't bring their friends? I think that's 100% wrong. Certainly, we can be offensive in the way that we preach natural law and revealed law. We can be offensive. We can be insensitive. We can be judgmental and harsh and in ways that are uh, unnecessary and, um, and unnecessarily uh, offensive. Nevertheless, the preaching of the law of God, the way the Apostle Paul does from nature in Romans chapter 1, and the way uh, that he does throughout his epistles from revealed law as found in scriptures, it is a step toward the gospel that cannot be neglected. Let's uh, just digress to talk about the psychology of unbelief. Uh, what does the unbeliever know? They know that something is wrong. Something is not right. It may be vague. It, it may be undefined. Um, they're uneasy about life. They don't have direction. They don't have a sense of uh, purpose. They're, they, they lack fulfillment and satisfaction. There's, a, there's anxiety about the future. They may even, may even be depressed. That's the psychology of unbelief. If we go to the unbeliever and present Jesus to them without the law and sin being defined, then we are presenting Jesus to them as though he were a guru who was going to help them with their image, their self-image, with their self-esteem, to help them with their loneliness and isolation, to bring them comfort and support so that they'll feel better about themselves. What we're doing is we are putting Band-Aids on the symptoms rather than getting the root of the problem. The root of the problem is sin, and sin is known by the proclamation of the law of God. When you go to the doctor, and heaven forbid, the doctor tells you that his diagnosis is that you have cancer. That, that, that's a terrible diagnosis to get. It's very, very hard to hear. I mean, what you could say is, well, that's a very harsh diagnosis, doctor. That makes me very uncomfortable. Um, I, that's not the diagnosis I came uh, to hear. Uh, nevertheless, it, it is the diagnosis that one needs to hear, even if it's one's uncomfortable or saddened by it or uh, um, find, find it to be dis disagreeable or, or, or annoying or, or whatever the, the case may be. No, we need to hear the diagnosis. We need to hear what the divine doctor has to say about the human condition and our conditions. We need to know about our sin. And it's the law that defines our sin, that exposes our sin, that convicts us of our sin. So our responsibility as a church is to preach the law of God, the standards of God, the word of God. And you should bring your friends if you want them to be saved. Because this is what they need to hear. This is the divine diagnosis, as uncomfortable as it may make people to, to, to hear, as disagreeable as it may be, be to them, as offended as they, as they may become in, in, in the hearing of it. It's what they need to hear. And it's the necessary step in their salvation. So number two then, did you know all that was point number one? Well, in one sense, number one was the lawless age. Number two is preach the law. Number three, our responsibility. As we are looking ahead, as we're going back downtown, what's our responsibility? It's to preach the law and it's to preach the gospel. Preach the gospel because now the gospel makes sense. 
that Jesus came to save sinners. And I understand now because the law convicts me that I'm a sinner. I have this problem of sin. God is a holy God. He takes offense at my behavior. I need to be delivered. I need to be rescued. I need to be saved. So we, if we will flip over to Acts chapter 2, the first Christian sermon in many ways is a prototype, a model for Christian proclamation as Peter preaches Christ and the resurrection. He builds his case for Christ and the resurrection. He comes to verse 36, John chapter 2, rather Acts chapter 2. Did I say John? I'm in Acts. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Well, that's very direct. The apostle Paul might offend people when he says that. He's not tiptoeing around the issue. He's not concerned about whether or not they might feel bad. He's very direct and very specific of the problem. Jesus Christ, whom you crucified. I remember hearing a lecture on preaching in which they said, oh, don't ever use the second person. You always want to use the, the first person, we. And I, that's typically what I do because I understand I'm a sinner along with everyone else. The apostle Peter, what they do? You crucified him. This is what you have done. This is, this is your peril. This is your need. You understand what uh, is facing you. So, verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you. So he's very direct with them. He calls them to repent. He calls them to be baptized as a symbol of their repentance for the forgiveness of your sins. There is the problem of the problems. The problem for them was their sin. The point of his preaching was to point out their sin, and in particular, the, 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 the worst sin, as, as it were, that they could have committed, that is, was participating in the crucifixion of the Son of God. And so, by, by, by arguing from the greater to the lesser, all lesser forms of sin as well are taken up in that. The problem of problems is our sin. That needs to be identified. And once we've identified the sin, then we can preach the gospel. And the gospel can be received and heard and understood, which otherwise it will not be understood until we understand that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Drop down to uh, verse, verse 40. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves. There's the issue. They need to be saved. That's what's at stake. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. You need to repudiate what characterizes uh, the generation in which you are living in their self-righteousness and their hypocrisy and all the rest of it. You need to turn from, away from uh, your culture and, and your generation and, and, and turn from it and repent of your sins and embrace Jesus Christ. The result, contrary to all expectations, just as we saw when we were looking at the preaching of Jonah, verse 41, those who received the word were baptized and there were added that day 3,000 souls. We need to preach the law. I've, I've especially uh, wanted to give that emphasis because I think it's neglected in our day. I think it's not understood in our day. I think people don't understand what we are doing and where we're placing emphasis at certain points. And we preach the, the gospel in the context of the proclamation of the law. Now, let me close with this. Rodney Stark co-authored a book entitled The Churching of America, 
1776 to 1990. And he, he starts with um, 1776, three primary, three largest denominations were the Episcopal Church, Church of England, we're an English colony, um, the Congregational Church, which dominated New England, and the Presbyterians, three largest denominations. Um, and very high standards for membership, not so much in the Episcopal Church, but among the Presbyterians, uh, the, you know, these are the descendants of the Covenanters. Very high standards for, um, for um, belonging, for being a part of the church. Very high standards amongst the Puritans, the Congregationalists of, uh, of, of, of New England. Uh, he then, um, you know, very, you know there's, they're very strict denominations. In the 19th century, however, they were overtaken by the Methodists and the Baptists. Um, what happened was the Congregationalists and the Presbyterians began to weaken their standards in order to attract people. They lowered their standards. The Methodists come along, the Baptists come along. They are scorned. They are subject to derision, and they grow rapidly. And by the middle of the 19th century, the Methodists are the largest denomination in North America, and the Baptists are second. In the course of the 19th century, the Baptists then overtake the, the Methodists. They, the, by the way, Puritans are called Puritans. That was, that was a term of derision. Methodists are called Methodists. That was a term of derision as well. These are people that were scorned by society, had very, very strict religious, high standards for admission, high standards that are meant to be upheld, and then high costs in terms of uh, social cost for belonging to the group. Then in the 20th century, the Methodists and the Baptists were overtaken by the Pentecostals and the Charismatics. Here's what he says, common denominator for growing churches, high standards, high level of commitment, high social cost. People will think you are crazy. You are crazy persons. But with that, because there's such a high standard for admission and participation, very high value in belonging. Okay, common denominators for declining churches. They reduce the standards, they lower the demands, they lower the social costs, they try to accommodate themselves, fit into the culture, be a part of things, uh, remove the derision to which they're subject. This is what happened with the, uh, the Puritans in New England and the Presbyterians. Um, this is why they were overtaken by the Methodists and the Baptists. This is why the Methodists and the Baptists have been overtaken by the Pentecostals and the Charismatics. You know, Pentecostals are called holy rollers and all this kind of thing. Common uh, denominators of declining churches, reduced standards, low demands, low social cost being accommodated, and therefore low value on participation and membership. It's all counterintuitive. Higher the standards, the, the more rapid the growth. Um, the, the, the higher the level of commitment, the lower the standards, uh, the lower the participation, uh, the lower the value. Now this is all being analyzed sociologically. And not theologically, but uh, not biblically, but sociologically. So Stark's just saying, look, this is the way things go. Isn't this interesting? It's counterintuitive. You would never expect it. People that are demanding much in terms of repentance and faith and commitment, they're the ones that are growing. Uh, the ones that water all that down, they quit growing. He, they even bring into the picture the Roman Catholicism. Talk about how the pre-Vatican uh, uh, pre II, Roman Catholic Church had something like 80 to 90% uh, attendance every week. I mean, very high demands. Vatican II came along, all the standards were relaxed, and just plunging numbers going into the priesthood, going into the monasteries, attendance, everything plunges. Lower the, lower the demands, lower the cost. Again, sociologically, not theologically, biblically, 
determined. Now, why do I bring that up? Because I want to accustom you to a hard gospel that makes hard demands and requires high social cost because that is the path to being a transformative church with a transformative message. Don't, don't, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. We more and more stand out, more and more we're a city set on a hill shining in a, in a very dark place. Do not be afraid of that. Do not worry about the scorn of the world. Uh, don't be put off by the fact that we expect a lot of our members that we expect you to be in church Sunday morning and Sunday night. Don't be put off by that. Don't be put off by the fact that we're going to talk about doing family worship and catechizing our children. Don't be put off by the fact that we have these, uh, these standards that we preach and teach and, and, and want to uphold. Don't be put off. If we want to be a transformative church, we will not water down our gospel. We will not water down our messages. We will not compromise them. The great uh, Yale historian Kenneth Latterett said the early Christians were able to, quote, outthink, outlive, and outdie their generation. That's what we're called to do, to outlive them by living according to God's word. We're to outthink them. We're to think through what's going on around us and address our gospel to the, to the situation, to the issues that are, that are facing our, our society and our neighbors and our people out of sheer Christian love for them and their destiny and their souls and, and even their good, their well-being in, in this world, in this place, in, in, in the here and now, and outdie them. Outdie them in that we are prepared to die, that we're, we're prepared to die for what we believe in. Uh, this world is not all there is to us. We don't put a, a, the ultimate premium on this world and this life. We're preparing for the next world, and so we can sit loose to the things of this world in, in order to be faithful disciples of Jesus Christ and proclaim that law and live it and proclaim that gospel and live it. And by doing that, being salt in the earth and, 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 and a light in the darkness and, and, and a city set upon a hill. As we look forward to the fall, let's, uh, you know, let's pour our energies into building this church uh, so that we can be everything that we ought to be to, to, to reach uh, this generation with all the standards and norms and, and certainties collapsing all around it. Uh, let's be there uh, and be a witness uh, to the life that God uh, calls us to live in Christ and to the life that we anticipate in eternity as we pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray, O oh Lord, that, that we might be a, a faithful church. Oh, that we would be faithful. And oh, that we would not shrink or lose our nerve. Uh, we pray that we would uh, prove to be your disciples and, and fulfill the commission that you've given uh, to your people. And, O oh Lord, as we look to the fall and the months ahead, uh, we pray that you would revitalize our congregation. Uh, we pray that, that you would reinvigorate our, our commitment to the whole life of the church, uh, to being Christian individuals and Christian families and a Christian congregation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.